In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor, normally in Brussels, but currently in Rome. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin. This week, the fallout over the UK's unilateral move on the Northern Ireland protocol continues with legal action by the EU imminent. We'll be looking at what form that might take and what its impact might be. And with the House of Commons debating the protocol, we'll explore if the plunge in relations is down to David Frost taking over as the front seat driver of the UK's policy on how both sides should get along in the future and on the protocol. Yes, indeed, it's been another week of megaphone diplomacy between both sides, with another falling out over the vaccines issue and sniping over the Erasmus scheme. And in the midst of all that, Theresa May's special advisor on Europe has lamented that if only someone from the Irish Embassy in London had taken him out for a pint back in 2017, then the whole Irish border calamity wouldn't have been so bothersome. But first, Sean, to you, let's get uh, the trade statistics today. How are things going? Not very good is the short answer. January trade stats out from the Office of National Statistics this morning showing that in the month of January imports into the UK from the European Union fell by 28.8%. That's £6.6 billion trade down on the same month last year. And exports out of the UK to the European Union fell by 40.7%. That's £5.6 billion of exports. And of course, all those exports to the EU having to go through all of those EU customs controls and form filling. So that is the drop of trade in hard numbers, in pounds and also in percentages of the impact of Brexit. Although they're saying it's not entirely Brexit-related, the year-on-year comparison, there is a COVID factor in there as well. But an awful lot of this is very clearly related to Brexit at the end of British access to the Single Market and Customs Union and the different arrangements that would have been put in place by companies. We know uh, about the stockpiling, the front-loading of supplies that was going on. That was most particularly evident in the pharmaceutical trade With Ireland, according to the ONS, they pulled it out saying that in the three months to the end of December, exports to Ireland of pharmaceutical goods made in Britain increased by 224% compared to the same period the year previously. So a 224% increase in those three months and then a drop after Christmas. That, you can see very clearly, is related to stockpiling, people putting their stocks into warehouses to get them over the hump of the disruption that they were all expecting to happen after Christmas. And indeed, 
we did see that disruption happening. Pharma, by the way, um, the, the biggest single component in all of those trade drops, down 1.1 billion in trade to the European Union. There was a slight increase in non-EU trade in pharma of about 300 million, but overall netting one off against the other, it's still down by 800 million pounds in that one month. So very much a Brexit effect being felt on trade. Question is how much of it is temporary and how much of it is permanent. And that means, of course, more data. Okay, the stats you've just gone through follow on on a report from a couple of days ago where Make UK, that's the manufacturing sector in the UK, saying a third of its members had also lost revenue in the early part of the year, which might go some way towards explaining why the UK announced it wouldn't be immediately imposing the customs checks we were talking to Carol Lynch in a recent podcast about that were due to come in on April 1st. They're trying to keep down the level of disruption that's already hit the economy. That's right. The customs regime that was supposed to kick in in April and then SPS plant and animal health checks that were supposed to kick in from July, they've both been deferred until October and partly until January and then final checks taking place at border control posts from next March. That's March, 12 months time. So things have been pushed out much further. There's effectively at least an extra six months of time for companies to prepare. And the government are saying this is very much driven by them responding to industry requests for some relief of the burden of extra red tape and extra form filling and trying to find customs agents, etc., etc., because they're already being hit hard by the disruption that we see in those trade stats in sending stuff to and from the European Union, principally in sending it to the European Union. Now to have all the extra paperwork of having stuff coming in from the European Union, they think that would be extremely disruptive. And of course, you do have a COVID factor in there as well that's just not helping people even with the best will in the world trying to cope with a situation like this right COVID doesn't help anybody's case but so they have given them that extra time and space but there's also a very strong suspicion shared by many people that government systems may not be ready in time either and so it probably suits a lot of people just to push this one off into the future okay it could be taken tony in, in some degree as a sort of a the uk framing itself also as the more reasonable partner in uk eu relations by suspending these checks it means that in theory it could be viewed that the extension of the grace period with regard to northern ireland and checks there that britain is is prepared to do what it's asking the eu to do but as One Brussels diplomat quoted by the Financial Times said today with about the suspension of checks, the inward checks into the UK, it confirms the trend of taking back control by not taking back control. So Brussels not terribly impressed by this. Yeah, and at the outset, Brussels made it clear last year that it wasn't going to copy the UK's idea of holding off on checks and controls at the ports immediately for a three-month period or a six-month period. Brussels made it quite clear that the EU's side of the bargain would apply immediately and there's no sense that 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 would change even again if the UK, as Sean has been describing, defers the implementation of these checks and controls for another six or or nine months or, or whatever. So, you know, I think there's probably a little bit of schadenfreude in the EU this week because of this, given all of the other bad blood that is, you know, being being lobbed uh, back and forth across the channel. But in terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol and and those grace periods, yeah, we, we discussed in quite detail last week 
the UK's decision to extend the grace periods unilaterally for the Northern Ireland Protocol, and we've had a lot of controversy about that in the meantime. Yeah, well, we've uh, seen we some action on that coming from, from the, the Brussels side, haven't we? Just walk us through some of the steps that have been taken. I suppose, first of all, there there were phone calls. Maros Shevchevich, the co-chair of the Joint Committee, had his first phone call with David Frost, the UK's lead person now on all things Brexit and future relationship and the protocol. They had their first phone call on the Wednesday night that that unilateral move was taken by the UK and that seems to have been a very difficult phone call. Mr Shevchevich was somewhat annoyed that David Frost hadn't picked up the phone and warned him that this was coming. There was a special hotline set up between both sides to deal with these kinds of issues and he didn't have the courtesy to, to make that call. Certainly that was the, the feeling on the EU side. And then there was quite a bit of analysis done between the Commission and Member States and the European Parliament as to how they should respond to this latest gambit by the UK on doing something unilaterally, just as it, as they had done in September of last year with the Internal Market Bill. And I think there was a fairly swift consensus that the EU simply had to take legal action. So they, they've been taking their time about this, which in some ways is a bit surprising, but I think politically this time around the commission wants to do this in a much more kind of inclusive way you'll recall that back in september ursula von der leyen the commission president marched forward to a live tv camera in the european commission and announced dramatically to to the world that the eu was taking legal action against the uk because of the internal market bill and i think at the time some member states were a bit blindsided by this they they, they had no idea that legal action was going to come that that day there was no warning of it so this time around i think they've, they've been a bit more careful to to be to be talking to member states maros Shevchevich briefed eu ambassadors on Wednesday afternoon uh, about the different legal options that they had so I mean essentially what they're what they're going to do is have to have two letters one would be a straightforward uh, letter of formal notice which is the first step in, in an infringement procedure that uh, that you would take against any member state and that is because this is seen as a straightforward breach of of single market rules through the protocol now People would say, how can the UK be taken to the European Court of Justice through an infringement procedure? Well, Article 12.4 of the protocol permits that because the, the ECJ writ still runs in Northern Ireland and part of the obligation in implementing the protocol is through Article 12.4 and part of that obligation is that the, that the UK abides by EU single market rules in Northern Ireland. So, you know, by that logic, then they are kind of captured by the ECJ process and an infringement procedure. The second step is going to be a letter that's essentially written to the Joint Committee raising concerns that this is uh, not in good faith. This is essentially a breach of Articles 167 and 169 of the Withdrawal Agreement, which commits both sides to making sure that they make best endeavours to consult with each other when implementing the Withdrawal Agreement, including the Protocol. And clearly, it's felt that the UK didn't do that on this occasion. And, and that is, I suppose, the first formal steps towards arbitration through the withdrawal agreement there's a there's a dispute settlement mechanism in there and if if it goes to arbitration and the UK doesn't abide by any ruling against it then you're in the realm of trade measures tariffs suspending parts of the free trade agreement uh, the TCA so so again you've got these two tracks that are going to be I mean I don't think things will go that far but it certainly raises the whole issue very 
visibly internationally for the UK that they have again been accused of breaking EU law, right. you know, just a couple of months after the free trade agreement was done. So this reputationally, and of course, in the eyes of the Biden administration in America, won't look very good. And I think the UK has been spending a lot of political capital trying to tell anyone who's who's interested that they don't think this breaches EU law or the withdrawal agreement. So I think we're going to see that legal action being announced early next week. But having said all that, I think at that point, there's a bit of a period of abeyance where everyone is drawing breath. But I think officials who have been quietly in touch in the background will start to get in touch again. And I think they will, both sides will be keen to get the protocol back on track. And just today, Friday, British sources were saying that they had finally granted the European Commission and member states access to those IT systems, the HMRC import clearance system, and also the transit system. And this was part of the overall deal in the protocol that EU officials in Northern Ireland and member states would have access to, to this real-time data basically showing what's moving from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. And that would give the EU some reassurance that, you know, things were as they should be okay. and, and that stuff wasn't getting into the single market that shouldn't be getting in there. Okay. Sean, insofar as this was in the public consciousness at all, it probably wasn't really much where you are in, in the UK, but public representatives were debating it. And the position of the government is that they're still committed to implementing the protocol. In fact, their position is that the extension of the grace periods in Northern Ireland is entirely consistent with the protocol. Yeah, and, and lawful is, is the phrase Brandon Lewis, who's a lawyer himself. They're not making used. that mistake of announcing they're breaching international law again. No, no, they're saying quite the opposite. They're saying it's legal. However, he was asked during that debate by Hillary Benn, who, as we all know, has knows a, his Brexit. Pretty, he knows his Brexit in pretty forensic detail. They asked him what article of the Northern Ireland Protocol made that provision legal or what other provisions in UK law made the UK government's action legal. Mr Lewis, well, he gave an answer, but he didn't answer the question. There was no uh, citing of any law. He just said again, yeah, no, it's lawful what we've done. <laughs> so if it does get into the um, undergrowth with lawyers, it could be interesting. But also, this is a six-month extension. How long is a legal process going to take? I I've seen su suggestions that it takes about 18 months for some of these legal processes to grind through. There's many a uh, British sausage will be exported and consumed during that period of time, thus threatening the integrity of the EU single market. Nevertheless, the issue, as you say, was debated in the House of Commons for an hour on Wednesday. It, it also a whole did hour. serve a whole hour, and, and that's, you know, not bad for parliamentary time. And it also did make the lead story, as it um, happens, on BBC Newsnight later that night, when there was quite a substantial part of the, that programme devoted to it. Well, so maybe, the maybe British public is not entirely uninformed about these issues, but yeah, generally, most attention is not focused on uh, Northern Ireland. But but the hook the hook for getting it on Newsnight was the US dimension that Tony mentioned earlier. It might be worth having a look at that now. Last Wednesday, Simon Coveney, the foreign minister here, and Mara Shevchevich were briefing the Friends of Ireland caucus on Capitol Hill, and Mara Shevchevich was there at the invitation of Simon Coveney. One of the people who is listening to that is, of course, Richie Neal, who is on the Ways and Means Committee, which makes decisions around trade deals. And since that briefing, we've learned that Northern Ireland official, although our colleague Tommy Gorman says it's a junior Northern Ireland office official, is being dispatched to try and put forward the British government's view on the Good Friday Agreement and how 
Their behaviour in all of this is entirely consistent with and indeed designed to protect the Good Friday Agreement. How do you think that will go down, Tony? Yeah, well, well they already have uh, a Northern Ireland official in Washington. The, the Northern Ireland executive has, has somebody there, Andrew Elliott, who actually used to be here in Brussels. Before he went to Washington, he would be very well versed in, in these issues. But yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the Biden factor is 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 a new kind of variable in this geometry and uh, you know i think it does somewhat stay the hand a little bit of of the uk in how it it plays its particular cards on on the uh, on the protocol like we all know that one of the big prizes for the uk post brexit will be a trade deal with the us and that is clearly going to be in jeopardy if the protocol is degraded or neglected by the UK in whatever guise. So I think that that is an important gesture by Coveney and Shevchevich to go over there and just to remind people of what's at stake. And clearly the UK seems stung by that if they're, if they're going to send some reinforcements over to get the UK message yeah, over. It's, and it's commitment re- to the Good Friday Agreement is all very well and good. Everybody likes the Good Friday Agreement. Who doesn't like peace? And both sides will argue that. The commitment to the Northern Ireland Protocol and the detail of its implementation is quite another thing. Well, the, the Biden administration seems to be very well versed in the protocol and and what it's there for and, you know, its history. I mean, the protocol as Irish officials will now tell you, is the least worst outcome of an extremely difficult set of circumstances that Brexit raised between the two islands. And, you know, it's, I mean, again, it, it, it brings you back to this discussion about what to do with the protocol. As we know, the unionist family is now fully opposed to it. There's a growing clamour in the UK against it. There are respectable think tanks saying what options do the British government have and, you know, perhaps they should try and re negotiate the protocol, you know, get something else in its place. And we talked last week about the risks for Ireland if eventually member states like the French decide that, look, this is just not working and we need to have more certainty about the integrity of the internal market and perhaps those checks and controls may have to happen uh, somewhere else, uh, not on the Irish Sea, but on the Celtic Sea, that whole discussion. But, you know, when you when you go back to basics, the protocol is an international treaty. It's part of an international treaty. So if you want to kind of mess around with it, then you have to renegotiate a treaty. And I don't think that is in any sense realistic at at this juncture, you know, just two two months into its operation. The whole dynamic here is, you know, to what extent do you acknowledge that the protocol is difficult for people, that it has teething troubles, it has rough edges, and you try and fix those through the mechanisms that are there, namely the the joint committee and the specialised committee, or do you allow it to be kind of corroded by constant sniping and unilateral actions and so on. And I think both sides haven't really settled on an an approach. I mean, I do think, just talking to British officials this afternoon, I do think they are of a view that they want the protocol to succeed. And they would say that giving the European Commission access to those databases and IT systems is a kind of a confidence building measure. And also the UK have presented an operational plan to the the Commission that would see supermarkets themselves play a much bigger role in, in providing reassurance that certification is there, that traceability is there using, you know, much more advanced IT systems and traceability systems that, you know, could obviate the need for some of these very 
cumbersome and expensive uh, forms that suppliers have to have right. to fill in. Sean, in terms of the global Britain dimension to this, the interest that the Biden administration has, and indeed the particular slant of its interest has in the Good Friday Agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol and all of this, isn't sitting very well with the UK relaunch and global Britain and what it intends to do in striking out on its own. Yeah, well, it's it's a, a fly in the ointment, isn't it? I mean, a lot of the commentary here focuses, I think, correctly on the commonality between British government objectives and the Biden administration objectives in that they both seek to have a strong transatlantic relationship and are both committed to NATO and defence of the West in general, and that Joe Biden would be more inclined to act pragmatically, seeing Britain as an important player in that space on this side of the Atlantic and not allowing issues like Brexit dominate or drive his view of that relationship. There are bigger, more fundamental issues at play there. However, the Northern Ireland issue does cut in there and does make it a bit difficult. It's like the pebble in the shoe. It's not very big, but it can sure be annoying. And next Uh, week in the Senate, there's a motion on the Good Friday Agreement expressing its support for it. The protocol may be mentioned in that context as well. And of course, Micheál Martin's chat with uh, Joe Biden next week on St. Patrick's Day will also be dominated by this, one would assume, that maybe on vaccines as well. Yeah, and and, uh, also why you're getting that, that reporting in the Times and the Daily Telegraph on Thursday about this issue of sending somebody from the NIO over to to Washington, the Telegraph saying it's to counter the EU's efforts to colour the Biden administration and turn it against the uh, United Kingdom. I mean, if it's pitching it in those kind of terms, rather than sending somebody there to explain what's going on, there's a gap, obviously, between the, the spin that's been given internally in the UK. And the actual marching orders given to the official. At least we assume that's what it is. If it's a a junior uh, official from the Northern Ireland office going there with technical information, hardly sounds like the type of person you'd send over to affect transatlantic relations at the very highest level of strategic thought. So let's see what the reality on the ground is. The vaccine politique again may come into this on a transatlantic basis you mentioned it there there's been a certain amount of pressure on the Taoiseach to ask Joe Biden do you have any spare vaccines but they don't I mean three quarters of the American population haven't been vaccinated. No but there are tens of millions of AstraZeneca vaccines on storage in I think Baltimore and Ohio and the it hasn't been approved yet by the FDA there may be pressure on the Taoiseach to say listen while you're not using those is there any chance we or by extension you know Europe could get that I I think that might be the practical focus of anything to do with with vaccines. Whether or not there's any chance of success in the middle of a US vaccine rollout is another question. It would be curious, though, that America would send vaccines to the far side of the Atlantic when it won't send them north of the border to Canada or south of the border to Mexico uh, and and in their own pragmatic interests, push the disease further away from the frontiers of the United States. I mean, this is a vaccine that was made in Europe. Why should they do it? Also, a procurement may be an issue there because the American procurement has been done under defence acts, which means they can't export it. They haven't exported any vaccines. Neither has Britain exported any vaccines. But as we know from the information that came out from Brussels. The EU has exported millions of vaccines, including all of the uh, Pfizer vaccines that have been administered here in the UK, which is why it particularly stings, I think, in Brussels when the uh, UK keeps saying the EU has a ban on exporting vaccine. It's eventually forced the the EU into publishing some hard data on this. Again, they're, they're slow to defend their own positions here. But once the lie is out there, people here in Britain believe that the EU 
operates bans on vaccine exports and that Britain is supplying vaccines all over the world, helping out the third world. It's putting money into COVAX for sure, but that's quite different from exporting vaccines that have been made in Britain Indeed. to other countries. Uh, well, uh, lest we stray into the territory of, of another podcast, Sean, you were watching an interesting contribution of a former special advisor of uh, Theresa May's to I think the UK and a changing Europe the think tank were having a a round table and there was some interesting input from a former advisor to Theresa May. But what they've been doing there it's a really useful thing they've been doing long interviews with various players in the Brexit process to get their recollections down kind of an oral history project and one of them was uh, Denzel Davidson who was an advisor special advisor to Theresa May during her period in power. He had some interesting remarks about the one they all missed, or so it seems, which was uh, about Northern Ireland, talking about having a, a kind of collective failure in government at the time. He said to David Liddington understand. was really the only person who knew Northern yeah, Ireland. Yeah, I was about to get to that bit. Yeah. He was saying David Liddington was the only one to understand, but they, they basically ignored him and uh, didn't listen to him. So, I mean, that popped out into the public domain and it's uh, triggered quite a lot of toing and froing uh, on the Twitter sphere, including including with our friend in Brussels, I mean Rome, as I saw this afternoon. Tony, you've been waiting in there, but lots of people waiting in on this one saying, you know, what was up with this guy? His his most memorable line in this thing was, if only somebody from the Irish embassy had come round and taken me out for a pint and explained all about this, maybe uh, in 2017, an awful lot of bother could have been avoided here. But of course, loads of people are jumping on this one saying, hang on, we've been shouting about this forever. Forever. If only there was a thing called Google, this mysterious internet thing where you plug your box into a plug in the wall and it brings you all kinds of amazing information. Or, or the RTE website, Tony. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> free, free to anyone who, uh, who, who wants to have a look at it. But yeah, yeah no, Starting it, it, in 2015, has... by the way, folks. 2015. Yeah. <laughs> we were yeah. writing stuff about the Northern Ireland problem coming up. Yeah. No, it, it is... Uh, you know, there, there is a long kind of folkloric view in certain quarters in the UK that that it was Leo Varadkar who became the kind of villain of the piece in 2017 when he took over from... With his uber-nationalist, uh, irredentist tendencies, he took over from that nice man, Enda Kenny, who was going Enda to Kenny, be Britain's exactly, guy yeah, in Europe. And he's he, from, let, he let this kind of united Ireland agenda overwhelm yeah. him. Yeah, no, that, that's kind of crept back in to, to the discussions that on Twitter that Sean has mentioned today. But, I mean, it, it is true that when the referendum happened, like, I think Enda Kenny was the first foreign leader to visit Theresa May after she took over from David Cameron in Downing Street in July of 2016. But having campaigned and, in the UK against... Well, he did, yeah, of course. So, I mean, he, he wasn't did, that emollient about the Brexit thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there was a long sort of preamble to the referendum in Ireland of the Department of Foreign Affairs identifying the risks of Brexit, and they had clearly identified East-West, West-East trade, but also Northern Ireland as a problem area if Brexit were to happen. Although a lot of think, uh, I think a lot of the attention in Ireland, and at a certain point in the run-up to 2016, Ireland held the the EU presidency, so we were kind of in the spotlight anyway, and having much more detailed conversations with British officials while they were still in the EU. But at the time, there was a lot of talk about what David Cameron would get out of the EU if you know, when he went for his renegotiation that then triggered the referendum. Clearly, there, there was a moment, I think, in early 2017 where there was a definite switch in Irish policy because you'll recall before that the Irish government had been looking at how you might make a border seamless or high-tech 
and the revenue commissioners had been sending teams all over Europe to look at frontiers between the EU and third countries. How did they manage it in Ukraine? How did they manage it in the Balkans or you know Greece uh, and Turkey? And they looked in particular at Norway-Sweden as a, a high-tech, very modern border. But at a certain point, I think the penny dropped in Dublin that, wait a minute, why are we the ones who are running around trying to fix things for the UK? The UK has to come up with a fix. And I think at that point... Leo Varadkar was the kind of public face of that. Well, it was was an end of Kenny's time that that planning was not sort of stopped, but it was was put into neutral. You know, I remember speaking to somebody in the revenue commissioners at the time who said, well, we've been told not to get ahead of the politics of this and and what what that meant was the UK has to do this. We're we're not going to construct a fix for them. And I think at the time as well, there was a belief in Dublin that the UK may well decide to stay close enough to the single market and the customs union so as to make the whole border issue a lot softer and easier to manage. But that decision was taken in Enda Kenny's time. And if you go back, there's a famous speech Enda Kenny made to the IIEA in Dublin. It was a very assertive, almost aggressive speech about Ireland defending its interests against Brexit and Ireland being fully in the EU's camp and that Ireland's foreign policy was a European foreign policy. It was quite a striking, eye-catching address because he was kind of seen as the more amiable side of the politics of Brexit at the time. But here was a very sharp-edged speech saying, no, this is a British problem that was created by Britain and we are not going to generate a technical fix for you. You have to fix it yourselves politically. Okay, well, Sean, a little short of him standing out the front of the main post office in Dublin and referring to gallant allies in Europe. But another form of alliance that has been forged all over Europe at third level has been Erasmus. What's the latest on that and why is it falling victim to Brexit? Well, we know the British government had decided not to take part in the Erasmus scheme and not to opt into it. They said it was too costly and that the British government was a a net funder of the Erasmus programme, as in they put in more money than they got back out of it, although the Association of University Chancellors in Britain strongly disagreed with that because they said when you added in all of the money that EU students spent when they came to Britain by renting accommodation and eating and drinking their way around the United Kingdom, they actually made money out of the Erasmus scheme. However, government decided they were going to push ahead and invent their own new scheme, and they called it the Turing scheme, after a man who was hounded to death, some would say, by the establishment in Britain, a genius. Nevertheless, figures emerged this week suggesting that the Turing scheme, which the Prime Minister describes as a a brilliant scheme and urges everybody to uh, take part in, is probably not going to be as financially generous as the Erasmus scheme. Its figures were showing that the cost of living, the monthly payment to students, £630 under Erasmus, 490 under Turing, £1,300 for travel costs under Erasmus, nothing for Turing unless you're from a, a poorer background, so kind of a, a means-tested support there, and uh, free tuition fees in the EU scheme, but no tuition support under the Turing scheme. So it's had pushback from the academic community in Britain and uh, internationally, one Irish academic saying, hang on, we pay for them to come to our colleges, but they don't pay for our guys to go to their colleges. What kind of a deal is that? The Prime Minister remains very enthusiastic about it, though. All right, OK. All right, well, I suppose in the time that's allowed for us, it's probably in our interest to look ahead uh, to next week. So, Tony, what's coming up on your radar uh, in the next week? The big thing, Colin, will be legal action, which I suspect will be 
Monday, if not Tuesday. Um, they, again, they've taken their time over this, but we expect both letters to be sent, one to the UK government on the infringement and then a letter to the Joint Committee triggering the whole process of dispute settlement mechanisms within the withdrawal agreement. And then, of course, there'll be the reaction to that. But I do say, and, and just to repeat what I said in the podcast, I, d- I do think that there has been a bit of waiting around for the legal action to be triggered before both sides do get back to the table at a technical level and start looking at how they're going to fix this issue of the grace periods and this UK plan to outsource the whole traceability regime to supermarkets through what's called the digital assistance scheme. And again, the UK's argument will be, look, if we work that up, if it's effective, it will really make life easier on the protocol for people and let's just say we use the extension of the grace period to, to develop that system so that it, it'll work. But again, you know, a lot of skepticism on the EU side that, you know, this, there's a pattern here of the UK rolling in the grenade. And then, you know, when the dust settles, they, they get more concessions. So I think we'll, we'll see how this one pans out over, over the next week or so. All right, Sean, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was in Northern Ireland today holding frank discussions with the DUP. He wasn't meeting with Sinn Féin, nor was he speaking to Michal. Martin, maybe there'll be further developments on that when the intolerable protocol, as Arlene Foster called it today, is further discussed. But uh, what's coming up on your radar in the coming week? Well, Tony had it wrong. The most important thing next week is it's St. Patrick's Day on Wednesday. Yay. Uh, Never forget that one, folks. For me personally, the most important thing is I'm getting my vaccine dose on Monday. All right. Congrats. Uh, but yeah, but in terms of the British uh, government, their big announcement is their uh, long-awaited defence and foreign policy review, which is coming out on Tuesday. Again, that will feed back into the Atlantic relationship, into industrial strategy, into perhaps how they interact with Europe. Because remember, they declined the EU's invitation to take part in defence and foreign policy arrangements as part of their future relationship agreement with the EU. They are going to go it alone, uh, and this document should indicate to us a lot of the strategic pathways that they intend pursuing in that foreign policy, which, you know, they said they will pull in European states on an ad hoc coalition basis as they go along, depending on uh, issues as they arise, but they don't want to get involved in an overall formal European security and defence architecture. But that's the big one for next week. Okay, and as you say, St. Patrick's Day will be from Dublin rather than from the US. There will be no trip by Michal Martin over to Washington or indeed any other ministers going abroad this year. Everybody's staying at home and having those meetings virtually. So it would be fair to assume there'll be some Brexit angle in that chat between Michal Martin and Joe Biden. Well, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungain, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan in London. And from me, Tony Connolly in Rome. Thanks for listening.